0: Sign up today at ButcherBox.com Sleepy and use code Sleepy to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. ButcherBox.com Sleepy. Eat well, sleep well.
1: Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with Therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts.
0: Hi, everyone. My name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy, a podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. Happy Halloween, everybody. Tomorrow is Halloween, so today we're going to be having our last spooky story of the year, and this one is really a good one. But before we get to tonight's story, a word from our wonderful sponsor, BetterHelp. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com and start living a better life today. For me, it's always been easy to dwell on problems instead of solutions. Especially when I hit the pillow at night, I start commiserating and catastrophizing without really thinking about solutions to those problems. In the past, it has definitely kept me up, and I know now it's because I just didn't have the tools. But after years of therapy, I feel that I know how to change my mindset and solve problems rather than letting them torment me. The relief of that has totally changed my life and going to therapy is what's made it possible. Well, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions. It's convenient, it's affordable, and it works. So when you wanna be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com Sleepy today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com Sleepy. Be nice to your brain. It deserves it, and so do you. I'll put a link for this awesome deal in the show notes. And now, I get to thank our brand new patron on Patreon.com. Stacy Norman. Thank you so, so much, Stacy. I really, really appreciate you being a part of making this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, Stacy is our newest patron on patreon.com, which is a wonderful site where you can go and directly support creators of the work that you like. So if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's rest, maybe helped you wake up more refreshed the next day, then consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. At $5 a month, you get access to this whole other poetry feed, which is exclusive from a regular podcast, over 50 episodes of poetry readings, and, um, that's for $5 a month, but no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you would like to be a part of making this show like Stacy, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Ooh, well, tonight we have our last spooky story of this October. This one night before Halloween, and this is a really good one. So this is The Vampire, a tale by John William Polidori. And what's really cool about this is that it was written in 1819. And this story is kind of the tale that inspired every vampire-related story that you probably know and love. You may have heard about how Mary Shelley came up with the idea of Frankenstein uh, when she was, I think she was a teenager. The story goes that um, she was in this big mansion or manor or something and there was a crazy thunderstorm, and her and some of her fellow writers and um, I don't know, kind of bougie sounding people were stuck in this mansion during the storm. And to pass the time, they held this little competition where they saw who could write um, the scariest story. And it was during this little competition that Mary Shelley came up with the idea for Frankenstein. She later wrote that into the novel that you know and that you've heard on this show. Um, And what's really cool is that this story tonight was also written during that storm. So, vampires, Frankenstein two absolute pillars of the horror thriller genre all came from the same storm and the same little writing competition amongst friends and um, they went on to honestly change pop culture as we know it hundreds of years later and this story tonight is the origin of all vampire related things you probably know this one's definitely a spooky one Um, so just be warned it is spooky October Um, but I think you're really gonna like it because John Polidari is a really wonderful whimsical rhythmic writer and it's got a lot of really nice history in it as well okay that's enough of me yapping Without further ado, happy Halloween. Here is a reading of The Vampire by John William Polidori. And now this is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just as you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. ...and let me read to you. The vampire. A tale. The superstition upon which this tale is founded, is very general in the East. Among the Arabians, it appears to be common. It did not, however, extend itself to the Greeks until after the establishment of Christianity, and it has only assumed its present form since the division of the Latin and Greek churches, at which time, the idea becoming prevalent that a Latin body could not corrupt if buried in their territory it gradually increased and formed the subject of many wonderful stories, still extant, of the dead rising from their graves and feeding upon the blood of the young and beautiful. In the West it spread with some slight variation all over Hungary, Poland, Austria, and Lorraine for the belief existed that vampires nightly imbibed a certain portion of the blood of their victims, who became emaciated, lost their strength, and speedily died of consumptions. Whilst these human bloodsuckers fattened, and their veins became distended to such a state of repletion as to cause the blood to flow from all the passages of their bodies, and even from the very pores of their skins, In the London Journal of March 1732 is a curious and, of course, credible account of a particular case of vampirism which is stated to have occurred at Madrega in Hungary. It appears that upon an examination of the commander-in-chief and magistrates of the place, they positively and unanimously affirmed that about five years before, a certain heyduke named Arnold Paul, had been heard to say that, at Kosovia, on the frontiers of the Turkish Serbia, he had been tormented by a vampire, but had found a way to rid himself of the evil by eating some of the earth out of the vampire's grave and rubbing himself with his blood. This precaution, however, did not prevent him from becoming a vampire himself, for, About twenty or thirty days after his death and burial, many persons complained of having been tormented by him, and a deposition was made that four persons had been deprived of life by his attacks. To prevent further mischief, the inhabitants, having consulted their Hadani, took up the body and found it as is supposed to be usual in the cases of vampirism, fresh and entirely free from corruption, and emitting at the mouth, nose and ears, pure and florid blood. Proof having been thus obtained, they resorted to the accustomed remedy. A stake was driven entirely through the heart and body of Arnold Paul, at which he is reported to have cried out as dreadfully as if he had been alive. This done, they cut off his head, burned his body, and threw the ashes into his grave. The same measures were adopted with the courses of those persons who had previously died from vampirism, lest they should, in their turn, become agents upon others who survive them. This monstrous rhodomontade is here related because it seems better adapted to illustrate the subject of the present observations than any other instance which could be adduced. In many parts of Greece, it is considered as a sort of punishment after death for some heinous crime committed whilst in existence that the deceased is not only doomed to vampirise but compelled to confine his internal visitation solely to those beings he loved most while upon earth, those to whom he was bound by ties of kindred and affection, a supposition alluded to in the G-Hour. But first on earth, as vampires sent, thy course shall from its tomb be rent, then ghastly haunt the native place and suck the blood of all thy race. There, from thy daughter, sister, wife, at midnight drain the stream of life, yet load the banquet which perforce must feed thy livid living course. Thy victims, ere they yet expire, shall know the demon for their sire, as cursing thee, thou cursing them, Thy flowers are withered on the stem But one that for thy crime must fall The youngest, best beloved of all Shall bless thee with a father's name That word shall wrap thy heart in flame Yet thou must end thy task and mark, Her cheeks last tinge, her eyes last spark And the last glassy glance must view Which freezes o'er its lifeless blue then with unhallowed hand shall tear The tresses of her yellow hair, Of which in life a lock when shorn, Affection's fondest pledge was born. But now is borne away by thee, Memorial of thine agony, Yet with thine own best blood shall drip thy gnashing tooth and haggard lip, Then stalking to thy stone grave, go. And with ghouls and Aphrodite's ray, till these in horror shrink away from specter more accursed than they. Mr. Southey has also introduced in his wild but beautiful poem of The Lava, the vampire course of the Arabian maid, Oniza, who is represented as having returned from the grave for the purpose. Of tormenting him she best loved whilst in existence. But this cannot be supposed to have resulted from the sinfulness of her life, she being portrayed throughout the whole of the tale as a complete type of purity and innocence. The voracious Tornfor gives a long account in his travels of several astonishing cases of vampirism, to which He pretends to have been an eyewitness, and Kalmet, in his great work upon the subject, besides a variety of anecdotes and traditionary narratives illustrative of its effects, has put forth some learned dissertations, tending to prove it to be a classical as well as barbarian error. Many curious and interesting notices on this singularly horrible superstition might be added, though the present may suffice for the limits of a note necessarily devoted to explanation, and which may now be concluded by merely remarking that the term vampire is the one in most general acceptation. There are several others synonymous with it, made use of in various parts of the world, as vrokoka, vardolacha, Gul, Brakoloka, etc. It happened that in the midst of the dissipations attendant upon a London winter, there appeared at the various parties of the leaders of the Tan a nobleman, more remarkable for his singularities than his rank. He gazed upon the mirth around him, as if he could not participate therein. Apparently, the light laughter of the fair only attracted his attention, that he might, by a look, quell it, and throw fear into those breasts where thoughtlessness reigned. Those who felt this sensation of awe could not explain whence it arose. Some attributed it to the dead grey eye which, fixing upon the object's face, did not seem to penetrate, and at one glance to pierce through to the inward workings of the heart, but fell upon the cheek with a leaden gray that weighed upon the skin it could not pass. His peculiarities caused him to be invited to every house. All wished to see him, those who had been accustomed to violent excitement, and now felt the weight of ennui, were pleased at having something in their presence capable of engaging their attention. In spite of the deadly hue of his face, which never gained a warmer tint, either from the blush of modesty or from the strong emotion of passion, though its form and outline were beautiful, Many of the female hunters, after notoriety, attempted to win his attentions and gain at least some marks of what they might term affection. Lady Mercer, who had been the mockery of every monster shown in the drawing rooms since her marriage, threw himself in his way, and did all but put on the dress of a mountain bank to attract his notice. Though in vain, when she stood before him, though his eyes were apparently fixed upon hers, still it seemed as if they were unperceived. Even her unappalled impudence was baffled, and she left the field. But though the common adulteress could not influence even the guidance of his eyes, it was not that the female sex was indifferent to him, yet such was the apparent caution with which he spoke to the virtuous wife and innocent daughter. A few knew he ever addressed himself to females. He had, however, the reputation of a winning tongue, and whether it was that it even overcame the dread of his singular character, or that they were moved by his apparent hatred of vice, he was as often among those females who formed the boast of their sex from their domestic virtues as among those who sully it by their vices. About the same time, there came to London a young gentleman of the name of Aubrey. He was an orphan left with an only sister in the possession of great wealth by parents who died while he was yet in childhood. Left also to himself by guardians who thought it their duty merely to take care of his fortune, while they relinquished the more important charge of his mind to the care of mercenary subalterns, he cultivated more his imagination than his judgment. He had thence that high romantic feeling of honor and candor which daily ruins so many milliners' apprentices. He believed all to sympathize with virtue, and thought that vice was thrown in by providence merely for the picturesque effect of the scene, as we see in romances. He thought that the misery of a cottage merely consisted in the vesting of clothes, which were as warm, though which were better adapted to the painter's eye by their irregular folds and various colored patches. He thought, in fine, that the dreams of poets were the realities of life. He was handsome, frank, and rich. For these reasons, upon his entering into the gay circles, many mothers surrounded him, striving which should describe with least truth their languishing or romping favorites. The daughters, at the same time, by their brightening countenances which he approached, and by their sparkling eyes, when he opened his lips, soon led him into false notions of his talents and his merit. Attached as lie was to the romance of his solitary hours. He was startled at finding that, except in the tallow and wax candles that flickered, not from the presence of a ghost, but from want of snuffing, there was no foundation in real life for any of the conjuries of pleasing pictures and descriptions contained in those volumes from which he had formed his study. Finding, however, some compensation in his gratified vanity, he was about to relinquish his dreams when the extraordinary being we have above described crossed him in his career. He watched him, and the very impossibility of forming an idea of the character of a man entirely absorbed in himself, who gave few other signs of his observation of external objects than the tacit assent to their existence, implied by the avoidance of their contact. Allowing his imagination to picture everything that flattered its propensity to extravagant ideas, he soon formed this object into the hero of a romance, and determined to observe the offspring of his fancy, rather than the person before him. He became acquainted with him, paid him attentions, and so far advanced upon his notice that his presence was always recognized. He gradually learned that Laura and Ruthven's affairs were embarrassed, and soon found from the notes of preparation in the street that he was about to travel. Desirous of gaining some information respecting this singular character, who till now had only wedded his curiosity, he hinted to his guardians that it was time for him to perform the tour, which for many generations has been thought necessary to enable the young to take some rapid steps in the career of vice towards putting themselves upon an equality with the aged and not allowing them to appear as if fallen from the skies whenever scandalous intrigues are mentioned as the subjects of pleasantry or of praise, according to the degree of skill shewn in carrying them on. They consented, and Aubrey immediately mentioning his intentions to Lord Ruthven was surprised to receive from him a proposal to join him. Flattered by such a mark of esteem from him, who apparently had nothing in common with other men, he gladly accepted it, and in a few days they had passed in the circling waters. Hitherto, Aubrey had had no opportunity of studying Lord Ruthven's character, and now he found that, though many more of his actions were exposed to his view, The results offered different conclusions from the apparent motives of his conduct. His companion was profuse in his liberality. The idle, the vagabond, and the beggar received from his hand more than enough to relieve their immediate wants. But Aubrey could not avoid remarking that it was not upon the virtuous, reduced to indulgence by misfortunes attendant, even upon virtue, that he bestowed his alms. These were sent from the door with hardly suppressed sneers. But when the profligate came to ask something, not to relieve his wants, but to allow him to wallow in his lust, or to sink him still deeper in his iniquity, he was sent away with rich charity. This was, however, attributed by him to the greater importunity of the vicious, which generally prevails over the retiring bashfulness of the virtuous and There was one circumstance about the charity of his lordship, which was still more impressed upon his mind. All those upon whom it was bestowed inevitably found that there was a curse upon it, for they were all either led to the scaffold or sunk to the lowest and the most abject misery. At Brussels and other towns through which they passed, Aubrey was surprised at the apparent eagerness with which his companions sought for the centers of all fashionable vice. There he entered into all the spirit of the faro table. He betted and always gambled with success, except where the known Sharper was his antagonist, and then he lost even more than he gained. But it was always with the same unchanging face, with which he generally watched the society around. It was not, however, so when he encountered the rash, youthful novice, or the luckless father of a numerous family. Then his very wish seemed fortune's law. This apparent abstractedness of mind was laid aside, and his eyes sparkled with more fire than that of a cat whilst dallying with the half-dead mouse. In every town he left the formerly affluent youth, torn from the circle he adorned, cursing in the solitude of a dungeon, the fate that had drawn him within the reach of this fiend. Whilst many a father sat frantic amidst the speaking looks of mute, hungry children, but that a single farthing of his late immense wealth, wherewith to buy even sufficient to satisfy their present craving. Yet he took no money from the gambling table, but immediately lost to the ruiner of many, the last gilder he had just snatched from the convulsive grasp of the innocent. This might but be the result of a certain degree of knowledge, which was not, however, capable of combating the cunning of the more experienced. Aubrey often wished to represent this to his old friend, and beg him to resign that charity and pleasure which proved the ruin of all. It did not tend to his own profit, but he delayed it, for each day he hoped his friend would give him some opportunity of speaking frankly and openly to him. However, this never occurred. Lord Ruthven, in his carriage and amidst the various wild and rich scenes of nature, was always the same. His eye spoke less than his lip, and though Aubrey was near the object of his curiosity, he obtained no greater gratification from it than the constant excitement of vainly wishing to break that mystery, which to his exalted imagination began to assume the appearance of something supernatural. They soon arrived at Rome, and Aubrey for a time lost sight of his companion. He left him in daily attendance upon the morning circle of an Italian countess, whilst he went in search of the memorials of another almost deserted city. Whilst he was thus engaged, letters arrived from England, which he opened with eager impatience. The first was from his sister, breathing nothing but affection. The others were from his guardian's, The latter astonished him. If it had before entered into his imagination that there was an evil power resident in his companion, these seemed to give him sufficient reason for the belief. His guardians insisted upon his immediately leaving his friend and urged that his character was dreadfully vicious, for that the possession of irresistible powers of seduction rendered his licentious habits more dangerous to society. It had been discovered that his contempt for the adulteress had not originated in hatred of her character, but that he had required to enhance his gratification that his victim, the partner of his guilt, should be hurled from the pinnacle of unsullied virtue down to the lowest abyss of infamy and degradation. In fine, that all those females whom he had saw, apparently on account of their virtue, had since his departure thrown even the mask aside and had not scrupled to expose the whole deformity of their vices to the public gaze. Aubrey determined upon leaving one whose character had not yet shown a single bright point on which to rest the eye he resolved to invent some plausible pretext for abandoning him altogether, purposing, in the meanwhile, to watch him more closely and to let no slight circumstance pass by unnoticed. He entered into the same circle and soon perceived that his lordship was endeavoring to work upon the inexperience of the daughter of the lady whose house he chiefly frequented. In Italy, it is seldom that an unmarried female is met with in society. He was therefore obliged to carry on his plans in secret. But Aubrey's eye followed him in all his windings, and soon discovered that an assassination had been appointed, which would most likely end in the ruin of an innocent, though thoughtless girl. Losing no time, he entered the apartment of Lord Ruthven and abruptly asked from his intentions with respect to the lady, informing him at the same time that he was aware of his being about to meet her that very night. Lord Ruthven answered that his intentions were such as he supposed all would have had on such an occasion, and upon being pressed whether he intended to marry her, merely laughed. Aubrey retired, and immediately writing a note to say that from that moment he must decline accompanying his lordship in the remainder of their proposed tour, or ordered his servant to seek other apartments, and calling upon the mother of the lady, informed her of all he knew, not only with regard to her daughter, but also concerning the character of his lordship. The assassination was prevented. Lord Ruthven next day merely sent his servant to notify his complete assent to a separation, but did not hint any suspicions of his plans having been foiled by Aubrey's interposition. Having left Rome, Aubrey directed his steps towards Greece, and crossing the peninsula soon found himself at Athens. He then fixed his residence in the house of a Greek and soon occupied himself in tracing the faded records of ancient glory upon monuments that, apparently, ashamed of chronicling the deeds of freemen only before slaves, had hidden themselves beneath the sheltering soil or many colored lichen. Under the same roof as himself existed a being so beautiful and delicate that she might have performed the model for a painter, wishing to portray on canvas the promised hope of the faithful in Muhammad's paradise, save that her eyes spoke too much mine for anyone to think she could belong to those who had no souls. As she danced upon the plain or tripped along the mountainside, One would have thought the gazelle a poor type of her beauties. For who would have exchanged her eye? Apparently the eye of animated nature for that sleepy, luxurious look of the animal suited to the taste of an epicure. The light step of Ianthe often accompanied Aubrey in his search after antiquities and often with the unconscious girl engaged in the pursuit of a cashmere butterfly, show the whole beauty of her form, floating, as it were, upon the wind, to the eager gaze of him, who forgot the letters he had just deciphered upon an almost effaced tablet in the contemplation of her self-like figure. Often would her tresses falling, as she flitted around, exhibit in the sun's ray such delicately brilliant, and swiftly fading hues it might well excuse the forgetfulness of the antiquary who let escape from his mind the very object he had before the vital importance to the proper interpretation of a passage in Pausanias but why attempt to describe charms which all feel but none can appreciate it was innocence youth and beauty unaffected by crowded drawing rooms and stifled balls. While she drew those remains of which Lai wished to preserve a memorial for his future hours, she would stand by and watch the magic effects of his pencil and tracing the scenes of her native place. She would then describe to him the circling dance upon the open plain, would paint, to him in all of the glowing colors of youthful memory, the marriage pomp she remembered viewing in her infancy. And then, turning to subjects that had evidently made a greater impression on her mind, would tell him all the supernatural tales of her nurse. Her earnestness and apparent belief of what she narrated excited the interest even of Aubrey and often as she told him the tale of the living vampire, who had passed years amidst his friends and dearest ties, forced every year by feeding upon the life of a lovely female to prolong his existence for the ensuing months. His blood would run cold, whilst he attempted to laugh her out of such idle and horrible fantasies. But Ianthe cited to him the names of old men who had at last detected one living among themselves, after several of their near relatives and children had been found marked with the stamp of the fiend's appetite. And when she found him so incredulous, she begged of him to believe her, for it had been remarked that those who had dared to question their existence always had some proof given, which obliged them, with grief and heartbreaking, to confess it was true. She detailed to him the traditional appearance of these monsters, and his horror was increased. By hearing a pretty accurate description of Lord Ruthven, he, however, still persisted in persuading her that there could be no truth in her fears. Though at the same time, he wondered at the many coincidences which had all tended to excite belief in the supernatural power of Lord Ruthven. Aubrey began to attach himself more and more to Ionthe. Her innocence, so contrasted with all the affected virtues of the women among whom he had sought for his vision of romance, won his heart. And while he ridiculed the idea of a young man of English habits marrying an uneducated Greek girl, still he found himself more and more attached to the almost fairy form before him. He would tear himself at times from her, and forming a plan from some antiquarian research, he would depart, determined not to return until his object was attained. But he always found it impossible to fix his attention upon the ruins around him, whilst in his mind he retained an image that seemed alone the rightful possessor of his thoughts. Ianthe was unconscious of his love, and was ever the same frank infantile being he had first known. She always seemed to be a part of him, with reluctance, but it was because she had no longer anyone with whom she could visit her favorite haunts, while Sir Guardian was occupied in sketching or uncovering some fragment which had yet escaped the destructive hand of time. She had appealed to her parents on the subject of vampires, and they both, with several present, affirmed their existence, pale with horror at the very name. Soon after, Aubrey determined to proceed upon one of his excursions, which was to detain him for a few hours. When they heard the name of the place, they all at once begged him not to return at night, as he must necessarily pass through a wood where no Greek would ever remain, after the day had closed upon any consideration. They described it as the resort of the vampires in their nocturnal orgies, and denounced the most heavy evils as impending upon him, who dared to cross their path. Aubrey made light of their representations, and tried to laugh them out of the idea. When he saw them shudder at his daring thus to mock a superior infernal power, the very name of which apparently made their blood freeze, he was silent. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.